Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Please welcome John Waters. Thank you very much. Thank you. I like Queens. It looks like Baltimore, kind of. I really feel at home. Um, you know, I accidentally made a family movie when I made this picture. Um, if you haven't seen it, it's about how much fun music used to be before the Beatles ruined it. Um, I, I remember when we got a PG rating for this film, I was totally horrified. Uh, I never thought we would get that. Um, you know, now it's a big renter for children's birthday parties. Believe me, something I never, ever counted on. Uh, I have little girls that come up to me and say, you're the doctor in hairspray, and that's the only way they know me. Uh, they don't think Divine's a man. They don't know. I mean, it's not part of the plot. And I remember New Line at the time said, well, do you want to dub in some dirty words or something? You know, because like a PG John Waters movie was like really a scary thought at the time. Um, of course, you know, it, this was based on a real show in Baltimore called The Buddy Dean Show. Um, everywhere else in the country had The Dick Clark Show, which had teenagers that became famous dancing every day. But we didn't have that in Baltimore. We had a local version that was much more extreme, where the girls wore higher hairdos and the boys wore tighter pants. And I used to watch it every day and draw them and make up fictitious biographies of the crimes they would commit after the show and stuff. And I was completely obsessed by it. Uh, they still have reunions uh, today in Baltimore of the people that were stars on the show that I go to. They're mostly 60 years old now. And to see um, 260-year-old women doing the locomotion without irony is quite a sight. Uh, they're still very serious about it. I heard another woman say, she wasn't on the show. She was a guest. And they, they go in separate doors if they were on the committee and stuff. It's really good. It's, and, and they're real mean to the other people that weren't on the show. I, I really think it's fascinating. Uh, it starred Divine. Kind of this, unfortunately, was his last performance. He died a week after this film was released, um, after he got really good reviews. The New York Times said one of the best performances of the year. It was a pretty amazing career. He started it as a homicidal maniac with a chainsaw, and, you know, he was the kind... Drag queens were scared of him. And he ended it playing a loving mother, all as a man, which was, I think, a very, very good career. Uh, it was Ricky Lake's first picture. She had just been turned down for a job at The Gap when I cast her. Uh, <laughs> She, um, you can see, though, on this movie that she was going to be a star. If I hadn't have found her, someone else would. She was totally horrified when we bleached her hair the color. That's not a wig she's wearing in this one. Suddenly she has blonde hair. So that completely freaked her out. Also on this was Sonny Bono, who um, still was, uh, I think, wonderful sport to be in the movie. People say to me, oh, how can you be friends with Sonny Bono politically? Oh, big deal. You know, he's against flag burning. Who would do that in 1998? You'd feel like a fool, you know? I mean, who wake, thinks of a country every morning and wants to burn the flag? I don't know. It seems like the stupidest idea I've ever heard of. Uh, also, Pia Zadora was in this movie, who's something, you know, she's everything I believe in, why America's so good. Uh, she, she came to the set in her own private airplane that said, here comes Pia on the side. I love a, I love a low profile. <laughs> this 
very theater that we're in, the Rickless Theater, is named after Pia Zadora's well, I know. husband, who donated money. Well, I know. I print. took a leak, and I came back in and said, Rickless Theater, and I thought, God, <laughs> how great, you know, that he paid for this. Um, <laughs> and I think this is the first Pia Zadora movie we've shown in here. Well, you should show you. the other ones. They're good. But, I mean, Butterfly, watch it today. With, it's the only movie where Ed McMahon and Orson Welles are together at last. <laughs> and... And Lonely Lady is pretty good, too. I mean, there's a scene in the beginning where she's going alone to the Oscars, but they didn't have enough money for a lot of extras. It looks like 20 people went to the Oscars, you know, with this song, Lonely Lady, playing. It's, I think, great, you know. I think you should have a Piazzadora festival. Okay, well, you can curate it. But she, it's not hard. There's only three, you know. But... She is no longer with her husband, and she. Right. Um, but she's very happy. I talk to her. I still see her, and she's a really great lady. I, I miss her on the screen. She says, I don't do that anymore. Hmm. But um, I really miss her in movies. Some of the actors that you work with, like Sonny Bono mm -hmm. and Patty Hearst later on, tell us about how you like, well, convince these people to be in your movies. It was easier now. Then, what could they go look at? All the films were threatening. You know, this was, it was sort of unsafe to like me before Hairspray, but right. I hadn't made Hairspray yet. So Sonny Bono said that, he kept saying to me, are there any scenes in it that I haven't seen? You know, I think people told him, the 12 people were going to come in and eat shit when he left the room. You know? Right. Uh, and, and he did it really because all the waiters in his restaurant liked the movie and hmm. told him he should do it. Hmm. And uh, he was a great sport. I, I got along with Sonny Grady. He was a real sport. He was involved in early rock and roll, this kind of music. He worked for Phil Spector's label. He worked for the specialty label. So he was one of the only white guys really in really early rhythm and blues behind the scenes. So he knew Ruth Brown. He knew everything about this kind of music. Well, tell us about the music scene, because you, you were a teenager at the time. Um, yeah. The time this movie is set, I think you were about 17. Yeah. And, and uh, you said, when we were watching the movie, that there really was Negro Day. There was really Negro Day, so, and it was once a month. And the real disc jockey was named Fat Daddy. Mm -hmm. And um, I fictionalized him to this character. But Fat Daddy wore a crown, a cape, and talked, you know, like, always like that. And he had a song, Fat Daddy is Santa Claus, that was a big hit. <laughs> and they called it Negro Day. It was not anything weird. People didn't watch as much, and uh, there were no Negro committee members. You know, they were just one day a week. Mm -hmm. And what really happened in real life, I gave the movie a happy ending. In real life, it went off the show. It went off the air because yeah. of integration. Because mm -hmm. not so much the kids, their parents wouldn't let them dance with blacks. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a mostly blue-collar white kids on the show. And their parents were racist, some, mm -hmm. certainly some. And uh, it was a time, and, and they just couldn't figure out how to do it, and the show just went off the air because of it. But the real Buddy Dean is in the movie. He plays one mm. of the newsmen that looks in the limo in, in front of the uh, governor's mansion. Mm. So he, he liked the film, and uh, they were worried because they thought I was going to bring up this and you know make him look bad. And I don't really think it was his fault either. They just didn't know how to do it at the time in Maryland. You know, there was the real amusement park there was very racially tense. There were big riots there and everything, race riots. So a lot of this is based, based on the truth. What was your high school like? Was it I went to a Catholic high school, which to this day I could burn down, actually. <laughs> uh, and I got great revenge because they had their 50th anniversary and the Baltimore Sun called me and said, what did you think of your high school? And I said, they discouraged every interest I ever had. And I saw that in print. You know, uh, I, I don't go to the reunions or anything. And, I, I can't, you know, they wouldn't let me graduate off the stage. I'm not whining about it. I was also hated them. So by that time, school was not the place for me at that period of my life. <laughs> but they did discourage every interest, certainly. Um, there was one kid that was on this show in my class, and he had a gold DA, and they had Christian brothers, and they beat him up a lot. You know, you were allowed to beat up the students then. <laughs> it was acceptable. Brilliant. The teachers, right. I mean, right. not the students. Right. <laughs>
You said uh, the Beatles ruined popular music. Well, that's you, my opinion. Could you elaborate yeah. on that a little bit? Well, they changed it overnight. The same way Andy Warhol put out the abstract expressionists out of business in one night with a soup can, mm -hmm. they stopped every Motown in one night mm -hmm. and led to Herman's Hermits. <laughs> um, you talked about Ricky Lake and discovering her and that she would have been a star anyway and so yeah, you I think discovered she discovered her, yeah. but how did you discover her? What was she doing? She was in college and dropping out of college and there was a casting woman we worked with on this name, Mary Calhoun, who found her. And we were looking for a fat girl to be the star of the movie and it was really hard to find anybody to even try out for it, especially since it was a dance movie. Mm -hmm. And Ricky came in and just got right up and started dancing wildly and she did the lines perfectly and I knew it was going to be her. But then when we did Crybaby next, hundreds of fat girls tried out for the part, and there wasn't a role then, but I suddenly was like Jack Pratt, you know, I was the, uh, <laughs> and um, it, it, was, it was great. Thank God we found Ricky, because there was no second choice. I didn't know who was going to play the part. It was really did, hard to did find. Did she have a you know, performing background? Yeah, she, so she had made she's so one other, I think, mm -hmm. some student film, and she had been in the drama department. Yeah, she very much wanted to be in show business. Mm -hmm. And looking back on it, it's odd, because she told me then I want to be a TV star. And I thought, who wants to be a TV star, be a movie star? But look what happened. So um, she really did want to always be what happened to her. Watching Divine's performance, I mean, one thing that strikes me so much is how good he is as a comic performer and delivering yeah. your dialogue. I mean, it's just so... Um, I think so, too. You know, he plays the man in this, too. If you didn't know, he's the, the yeah. head of the TV station, the racist Mr. Yeah. Hodgepodge, is also Divine. There's a shock value in seeing him at first. And, you know, now... I, I, there's such a great natural timing and comic yeah, sense. I, I, I think so, too. Just I think when I first saw him dressed as this character, he walked in the street and all the women just said hi to him. They thought he was just another woman in the neighborhood. And I didn't recognize him at first, the first day on the set. I did a mm -hmm. double take when I realized that it was him because he looked very believable. He looks very much like many of the women that live in that neighborhood, for real. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, how is he as a performers because he get everything in one one take or oh, in the he... old days it was much harder like in the early movies like multiple maniacs and stuff there was a shot that lasted four minutes they had to memorize two pages of dialogue without making one mistake so they were trained from that which is much harder than you know making movies now where you film three sentences and cut and do it from a different angle mm -hmm. uh no divine was always the best divine in the beginning of my movies didn't have top billing he clawed his way to the top <laughs> uh audiences liked him very much right from the beginning right. and he wanted to do it but in the beginning he didn't really believe anything would come from this i did I, I was very ambitious and wanted to keep going but he never thought it would really catch on until the movies caught on in, in san francisco way before they ever played in new york and in los angeles hmm. and um he flew out there for multiple maniacs and hooked up with the coquettes which were then a big group that that worshiped divine hmm. and um Divine never went back in his mind. He never was Glenn Milstead again. That was the, because I told him, come to California. They really like you in the movies. And he had not one penny. Van Smith shaved his hair back like that. He got on an airplane in full drag, alone, with looking like, you know, Divine, with not one thing in his pocketbook, and flew to California. And he never went back, mentally, physically, in any way, really, as the person that got on that plane the first time, because he was met at the airport by 100 fans screaming divine, and he was speechless. Wow, wow. Of course, his most fa famous scene in Pink Flamingo is when he eats dog shit. Right. Um, well, he you, never you got said, over that. You know, I mean, yeah, he, but, he, it became a hassle for him. And, you know, it's the only competition I have, too. I noticed that on Packer, the bad reviews 
half of them were about pink flamingos, you know. Mm. Um, it's really a, a competition, your past, you know, and I'm glad I have that past. I'm very, very proud of that film. Mm -hmm. um, I had worked better than I ever thought, certainly, you mm -hmm. know. Uh, when it came out last year on video, it was the number two best-selling video in the country. Number one was Jerry Maguire. Number two <laughs> was pink flamingos, and that was number three. You know, that's amazing to me. Number three was The Rock. So, um, <laughs> yeah, how could that be? Right. Um, so... But certainly Divine very much like the movie. I think Female Trouble is a much better movie, and mm -hmm. I think it's the best Divine vehicle I yeah. made was Female Trouble. But later, it scared people. People really could never get over it with Divine right. for being in other movies and right. casting. People were so frightened by him that he did that, that they believed that he was truly insane, you know? And I think the weird thing he did in that movie was not so much eating shit. That seemed like it was in the script. We did it. But that I said to him, you know, the scene where he opens a bowel movement, and I said to him the night before, shit in a box and bring it. He said, okay. <laughs> to hell with prop masters, right. you know? I mean, can you imagine me saying, <laughs> saying to Kathleen Turner, shit in a box and bring it, you know? Uh, uh, it just was no big deal at the time, you know? We can put that in the museum. If it's <laughs> right, well, it's no longer, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but what I was going to ask you about that scene was, you, you've, in interviews, said that you knew this would get notoriety. It might help well, get I, attention. I, I was wondering what, would, yeah. what he thought it was going to do. He said, you know, I said, do we have to do something really this time? I don't know, remember what I said. I right. said, do we eat shit? And he said, yes. Is that all that happened? And we right. never talked about it. It was no big deal. And we, it was the last thing we shot. And it got that day. And he did it. I did one take. You know, the problem <laughs> was the dog wouldn't cooperate. You know, Divine was ready and willing. It was the right. dog right. that was, had star fits. Right. Um, <laughs> and I knew, though, the very first time it was ever shown, when people were Stunned, literally, like staggering out of the theater, like running from us. Yeah. You know that it worked beyond my wildest imagination. <laughs> but you have to remember that was a time of very influenced by left-wing politics. I just come from the Manson trial when I wrote that movie that I mm -hmm. went to for many weeks. Um, it was a period of um, extreme political um, radicalism. People joined that movie to make a crime, not for their career. It was like joining up to commit a cultural crime. Mm -hmm. That was the attitude, kind of. And mm -hmm. uh, it's hard to imagine that today, how insane and much fun left-wing politics was at the time. Mm -hmm. and, and that is what influenced Pink Flamingos. And that's mm -hmm. something that I think is very hard for people to see today, because it's so very, very different. There is no cultural war now. All film critics are hip. You know, and the very fact that the mainstream film critics hated Pink Flamingos so much, we used all the negative reviews in the ads. Hmm. Um, but they were the right kind of negative reviews, yeah. you know, like a, like a septic tank explosion. It must be seen to be believed. <laughs> <laughs> they don't write them like that anymore. You know? With polyester, you made what was called a mainstream film. It would be kind of stupid to keep making midnight movies. Yeah. And then there was this... this um, after you made that, there was a period when you were doing a lot of writing, and, and it was about seven years. Um... I was trying to make the sequel to Pink Flamingos. Then. Really? Yeah, and nobody would. And that's why it took so long. And then I wrote mm. a book. And I wrote, and, yeah. But generally, it was very hard, and I got very bogged down. I learned that if a movie you're trying to get doesn't happen right away, don't get stuck with it. That's what I learned from that. Because uh, now mm. it usually won't happen. Mm. Or you have to wait five years or something. So I kept trying, and I kept trying, and nobody would ever do it. And so how did Hairspray come about? How did you... I just made the next movie. You know, yeah. I, I don't really plot, like, oh, this time I'm going to do this. I just think, what's the next movie that would make me laugh, that I can be interested in for the next two and a half years and talk about without getting sick of it? Yeah. Um, what's my new obsession that I hope I can spread to other people? <laughs> and um, I always knew this very, very well, you know, mm -hmm. and this period, and I knew the dances, and... Uh, 
And I knew that um, it could, I hope, work. You know, it was certainly a nostalgic piece, you know, and I'll never make another movie that takes place in the 60s or the 50s, I mm. think, with Crybaby. I think the 50s are completely used up. It's really hard to make a movie mm. about the 50s mm. because of Greece and all those things have so influenced it. Um, but those were the two periods I remembered, you know. Yeah. I, so I made the movies about that. I don't think I'll ever make a movie again in nostalgia because I've used up all the, <laughs> the decades that I remember. When you're watching the movie now, does it bring back memories of the time of making it yes. more than the, the period that you're depicting? Oh, much words? more. You know, I was thinking, reading some of the names at the end, I think, God, where's that person? And, you know, yeah. and, and very, very sad about Divine, but I see how huge he was in this movie. I mean, he was really the largest he ever was, yeah. and that is why he died. Mm. And uh, so it's very sad for that reason for me to watch. Not sad, but like melancholy. It's, it's not sad the fact that he's still up there and you all are seeing him today. But... Yeah. Um, it's still shocking to me 10 years later that he is dead. I remember when the phone yeah. call came, it was, like, I, it was like another movie we had to go through, the, the funeral and everything, and yeah. it didn't hit till way later. But at his grave in Baltimore, people go all the time, they leave like dresses, donuts, eye makeup. You know? <laughs> <laughs> they leave pies at his tomb. I think it's great. You know? How did he enjoy the release of the film? I mean, the well, he had a week. You know, I guess yeah. it's better than a week before it. Yeah. But uh, he was very proud of it. He took his mother to the premiere, and they had been estranged for about 10 years, and, and they certainly got back together. And uh, that was very important to him, I think. Mm -hmm. um, he was very, very proud of it. Vincent Cambius had one of the best performances of the year. You know, yeah. He was very, very honored. And, and the last time I saw him was in the Odeon restaurant, and I walked him to the limo, kissed him on the cheek goodbye, and that mm -hmm. was it. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that's so clear in this film is your affection towards all the characters, pretty mm -hmm. much. Um, and I just want to, one, a word that sometimes gets uh, tagged your films is white trash, like you're depicting white trash. I never trash. say that word. That term is the last politically correct racist term to say, I think. Mm -hmm. I, I never say that term. Mm -hmm. um, it, it is a racist term, basically. Yeah. Um, blue collar is all right. Right. Me, you know, which is, you know, I don't think anyone in this film, certainly in Pecker, there were some people who said white trash. I think they were a loving, very functional family. I don't think white trash at all. Blue collar, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I don't use the term. Mm -hmm. Trailer trash, they call it in L.A. It's the same thing. That's offensive, right. too. That's right. the L.A. version of that word. Mm -hmm. um, the culture has changed a lot since Pink Flamingos. The culture and what's in the news, um, female trouble, which we're showing later this afternoon, um, is about fascination with crime and sort of comes from your fascination with sensational trials. And it's sort of amazing to think what's going on in the 90s with all these incredible trials and court TV and and what's going on with the with the Clinton scandals? People have commented that life sort of caught up with you and became a John Waters movie in a way. Well, in so some what, ways, I mean, I, I don't take responsibility <laughs> for Monica. Certainly, you know, um, you know, she just took I don't know, kind of patriotism to a new level. I but, uh, and I don't take, you know, people say Jerry Springer show like John Waters. I think not at all. I, I don't have any Jerry, anything against the Jerry Springer show, but I don't think it's especially witty, and I don't mm -hmm. think it's very funny. So I, I don't think my characters would go on the Jerry Springer show. Mm -hmm. And certainly I know the people that watch Jerry Springer every day don't like my movies. Um, mm -hmm. My movies never worked in real exploitation theaters. We tried them, mm -hmm. and they always did terribly. They never worked in the drive-in. They, they worked best in the richest, smartest neighborhoods, and they mm -hmm. still do. Mm -hmm. The nearest I am to water. Hmm. The further I get away from water, the less the grosses are. <laughs> it's true. I need mean, a puddle. You know. <laughs> I want to ask you about the 1960s. 
film scene, which you like now in some ways it seems so so long ago and so far. You know. It was long ago. Yeah, <laughs> but um, we've done series here on George Kuchar and Jack mm-hmm. Smith, and I just um, you know want to ask you about the influence of this scene, you know, because you would come up to New York and watch. Huge influence. Um, I lived in Baltimore then. I lived with my parents. You know, I was in high school. And Film Culture was my Bible, that magazine. Mm. And Jonas Mika's column in the Village Voice. Those were the only two things. And Variety sometimes wrote about it. Mm. And uh, that scene was very New York. You could not, they wouldn't even look at your movie if you weren't from New York. Mm -hmm. It was, um, now today, you know, they'd look at any film coming from anywhere. But then it was impossible. I never got any of my films shown until after Pink Flamingos became a hit. Mm. Multiple Maniacs, Mondo Treasure never showed her. They showed outside, everywhere else Mm. in America. Um, but the Kuchar brothers were a huge influence. Certainly, um, you know, those great, they made Co-op City with those lurid melodramas with stolen soundtracks and mm-hmm. Douglas Sirk lighting. And, mm-hmm. uh, and Warhol, who was really, really smart to finally put gay people and drugs together, which was a really good combination. Um, <laughs> Kenneth Anger, who still hates me, puts curses on me. I don't know why, I've never even met him. But um, <laughs> I'll just be gone before someone else drops the house on you. <laughs> uh, but I, 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 really, <laughs> I, I really like his movies very much, and they were mm. a huge influence on me and on everybody. He was the first person that ever used um, the ironic use of pop music before right. anybody. He invented yeah. that, and um, I salute his films. I think they're wonderful. And um, those were the three, I think, that were, that were the biggest. Jack Smith's son, but I only saw them later because Flaming Creatures was banned in New York, so I couldn't right. see that then. Right. And um, I, I read somebody said something that Multiple Maniacs that was a tribute to Jack Smith. It, I promise you it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, the Lobster, I think, is what they meant. I didn't mm-hmm. even know about The Lobster <laughs> and Jack Smith. The Lobster came from Provincetown, where there, I wrote them, where there was a postcard with a lobster over the, in the sky, and I always thought like, it was a lobster attacking tourists. And I became obsessed by that postcard, and I had every one of it hanging. That's where that came from, you know, the lobster that raped Divine. Um, but I'm sure Jack Smith wouldn't have minded, you know. Right. Now, what about Hollywood influences? And, and uh, in, in the case of Hairspray, doing a musical, just what was mm-hmm. it like? Were you thinking of older musicals when you were making that and referring no. to them? And then what was it like to do a musical, Corey? Cry Baby was more a musical, actually. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was where people start singing for no apparent reason. Right. Um, I think Hairspray was more like a dance film, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, I liked Elvis movies. I mean, uh, that was certainly the biggest influence on Crybabies. This was more of a dance movie, I think. Certainly, the Busby Berkeley movies were my favorite. I don't think this is like one, but mm-hmm. I really loved them. But I didn't see them until I was in New York during the under- in the 60s when there was a big revival of this stuff. Yeah. Um, old movies in the 60s were popular, too. 30s kind of melodramas right. and stuff were always revived. Um, certainly, in San Francisco at the Palace Theater, which had a really good underground scene, and at the and all the places in New York too. Not only were they showing underground movies, they would revive Busby Berkeley mm-hmm. and uh, Freaks and movies like that that mm-hmm. had never been seen, certainly by my generation. Uh, what was your reaction to the American Film Institute's uh, <laughs> 100 best list? Before, uh, <laughs> well, it was fun. You know, a lot of those movies I can't stand. You know, but I didn't vote, so somebody <laughs> voted. So whatever they want is fine with me. You know. Um, but around the world in 80 days. I mean, some of those ones that my parents dragged me to, I guess I was prejudiced against. Um, it's fine. Somebody voted for him. I don't care. You know, I certainly didn't expect to be on it. I mean, I didn't think Multiple Maniacs was going to be next to Shane, you know. <laughs> it came in 103rd. With your increasing success commercially, are studios now trying to knock down your board? No. No studio has ever tried to knock down my door. Um, well, once, maybe. Right after Hairspray came out, yes. Right. It was 
fairly easy. I made the first Hollywood movie, and about three or four of them wanted to do it. That's the only time that's ever happened. Um, no, it's still hard for me to get my movies made. I, I manage to, but it is never, ever easy. It wasn't easy to get Pecker made. It won't be easy to get the next one made. Um, it's hard for almost everybody to get any movie made. But my films do play, it's mostly because of foreign that my films do get played, because they get made, because they do play in all the different countries, and they're like, you know, like a successful art film is here. It's, it's not a big hit. But all my films, Pecker will make money because it didn't cost that much, and we do very, very well on video. You know, middle America does not come see my movies in the theaters, but they do see it on video because mm. they've heard of it by the time it comes out. I hope. I mean, they have the last three. But no, no one's knocking down my door. Are you going to release uh, the, the script for Flamingos? It is. It's in a book, Trash Trio. It's in that book, yeah. Now, if I was going to make it, I would have said that Anthony Hopkins should play Divine. And I did Roseanne's show recently, and she started doing Edith Massey imitations, which took my breath away, you know. And she said that her kids love Desperate Living, and every time she tells them to do something, they say, We honor you, Queen Carlotta. <laughs> and she'd be good as Edith. Roseanne is Edith, but then it would really be a big-budget movie. You'd have all these people playing the memories that you all remember of the old films, which would be the only way you could really do it. Are you planning another book? Yeah, I have two books. You know, I sort of want to do the, you know, shock value on, you know, which I'll definitely do, and I have another book in mind. But I have to keep making movies while they let me, um, because you don't know how long they will. And um, it's, it's harder to get a movie deal than a book deal. For me, at least. I probably get those books done fairly easily. It's just, it takes me at least a year to write a book, and I, I just don't want to get away from the movie business for a year right now, because uh, they don't remember. It's 12-year-olds running it, you know? So, um, you know, and, and I don't mind about that. You know, other people my age, they think, oh, they think you're too old. They still think I'm too crazy. Even if they're 20, the executive that I have to pitch. So uh, that isn't such an issue. And But if you wait a year, everybody changes so much in all the studios that it, it's starting over in a way. Well, I'm trying to do um, this movie that I wrote before Pecker called Cecil B. Demented that was all developed by French Money. And it's a hard movie to get made because it's, um, it's about teen terrorism against the movie business. And it's my diehard, so it's not cheap. And it's very insane. So um, we'll see. I don't know if it's going to get made or not. If it doesn't, I'll have to think up a new one soon. I have to go to Europe for Pecker in November. I'm going to like seven countries. So I'm going to promote it there when it opens, which will be, oh, God, to talk about it more. But it's okay. It'll be in a different language. So, you know, I can't read what they say about it. You know, I judge. How did it go? I don't know. The articles were big. It's like Pecker's dad. This is a big article. It could be the meanest article in the world. I don't know. Uh, your soundtracks have always had interesting, less than obvious choices. Um, were those tunes that, that you listened to on the radio growing up and envisioned for specific scenes or wanted to see in a movie? And added to that, are there any tunes or artists that you would love to see in, in future films with? Well, certainly every one of those tunes I've done drunkenly with my friends, those dances in my apartment for years before I made that movie. Um, all my soundtracks are two drawers in my house of 45s that I got for um, when I was a teenager. Um, certainly I knew all those dances and, and wanted to put them all in. On Crybaby, I did a lot of research and found new music. Um, even on Pecker, I, I found new music to put in there. Um, 
I always think the soundtracks are very, very important for my movies. And um, I do like music. I listen to new music. I, I play music constantly in my house. So, so basically, um, the soundtrack is always another character in my movie. It's very, very important. And, and Pink Flamingos also was music that most people had never heard of at the time or couldn't remember flip sides or very obscure hits. I, I don't put in just like oldies you're sick of the second time around. They're now in catch-up commercials. Um, you were off, you did voice on it was great. This, I did it because they asked me. I figured, well, if Elizabeth Taylor did it, I guess I can, you know. Uh, and it was fun. It was a little weird because I played a character that looked like me named John that was sort of a gay antique stealer, which I'm not an antique stealer. So um, I, I said to him, fine, I'll be happy to do this as long, if I look like Richard Simmons, though, I'm coming to kill you, right? Because you do, you do the voice first, and you have no idea how they're going to draw you. And so that's what I was worried about. Um, but I, I had a good time. You go there and you do it. It's like doing a radio show in a way. You, you have a table reading where everybody sits around and does, reads through once. And then each person goes to a microphone. You do a page or two at a time. There is a director. Um, that he'll say sometimes, do that line over separately. But um, it only took one day. And uh, all the people that worked on it were great. It was fun. I had a great time doing it. And the show won the Emmy that episode. And um, it's amazing to me that that show was really subversive, that can be about gay rights for families watching it at 7 o'clock at night, certainly is very, very different than when I was growing up. My, my nephew, who's 12, said, can I interview you for the school paper about it? I thought, boy, times have really changed. But they've changed so much now that I do the college lecture circuit, and I think, is everyone gay at colleges? You know, it's, <laughs> it's only rich kids' schools, though. And I tell them, I see them struggling with their heterosexuality. You know, they feel so guilty. <laughs> and they're all going to come in, you know. Um, I saw Hairspray many times when I was a kid, and I really loved it. And, um, Thank you. And I was very fascinated with Michael St. Gerard. Oh. And I was wondering, like, if there's something especially funny about, like, look possible. You know, he went on to play Elvis in the um, TV series about young Elvis, and he's played Elvis in about four movies. And uh, when we first saw his picture, we thought there was an uncanny kind of resemblance to Elvis. Um, I like Michael very much in the movie. I thought he was a great leading man for Ricky, and they're still very, very good friends. Mm. I must tell you, I saw Pink Flamingos when I was 14 years old. That's illegal. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That's the difference, you know, when it was re-released. Every person was on drugs when they saw that movie when it first came out. And not as many were on the re-release. Um, I was curious, was that, um, was that your first um, feature? And how did you um, get the funding to... Uh, it wasn't the first feature. The first feature I made was Mondo Trasha, which was 90 minutes and should be 10. And, uh, and then Multiple Maniacs. But it was the first color one. It was certainly the most successful one. Um, and my father paid for it. And my father has never seen it to this day. He's forbidden to. Um, my, fa my father lent me the money to make those early movies, and I paid him back with interest. And he was so shocked that he would get the money back. Because I would go around the country with him in the trunk of my car. This is Mondo Trasha on Multiple. 
during the 60s and look and say, well, where did they just have a riot? And, oh, they burned the Bank of America down. Let's go there. We'd go to that city. I had the trunk, you know, I had the films in the trunk. We'd go to whatever was the weirdest little theater and say, can we have a midnight show? Rent the place for like 50 bucks or something. Stand on the corner, give out flyers, show the movie, and maybe make 60 and move on to the next town. And I really learned from doing that. It was really hard and it was really a struggle, but I paid my father back. And he was so shocked. And then I'd come and say, well, can I have twice as much? And finally, with Pink Flamingos, he, uh, and these films were against everything he ever believed. And my father is like George Bush. And he doesn't get mad when I say that. And, uh, and, <laughs> and I paid him back. And finally, with each time I said, can I get more? And then with Pink Flamingos, he said, well, you don't have to pay me back, but put all that into the next one and don't ask me again. You're set up in business now. Well... I didn't realize how loving that was till I was an adult, really. I look back and think, why wouldn't he help me as my father? Well, I'm making movies about everything that would be against him. There were hideous articles in the paper about me always, you know. Like, uh, we didn't get good reviews, believe me, especially where I lived. They said, this person is sick and needs psychiatric help. You know, my father is named John Waters also. I'm a junior. <laughs> so I, I have made his life hell in a way, you know. Uh, <laughs> what were the budgets for those films? Uh, well, Mondo Trasha was twenty five hundred, and Multiple Mace was five thousand, and Pink Flamingos was twelve, and Female Trouble was twenty seven thousand. That would all be with inflation, I think. You know, Pink Flamingos today probably would have been fifty thousand. I think that's what twelve thousand probably would have been then. How did you get to meet Divine? How did you come across Divine? Divine moved with his parents very near where my parents lived when he was about sixteen. And we met because there was a girl named Carol Warnick, who I know, who had bleach blonde hair turned green from swimming pools. And I needed to see her cutting the lawn, and I had to meet her. And she had on short shorts and this really trashy green hair. So uh, she used to play gamble with Divine for pimple medicine. They used to play cards. And she knew him, and I met him that way. As a neighbor. Really, he was my neighbor. And he had a very hard time. He got beat up every day by the police. And he wasn't flamboyant. He was like a nerd, you know. But they, they could see the divinity lurking. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to model your work on Divine. Yeah. Uh, films they show before they show movies of what they have on the consent. Well, that was an influence, certainly, yes. When you made Hairspray, what were, were you still thinking on those? No. Certainly, uh, that was kind of a joke in a way. But basically, I mean, that... The way those movies look, like those meatball subs when the color is all gone from this being so old, the print, or like, you know, the, the beauty of when they start the, at the drive in the first feature before it's dark and nobody can see it, that horrible moment. Um, all those kind of things I notice, but I think emotionally it's what I'd like to reproduce, not so much. I always tried to make the movies look as good as I could. I mean, I didn't. People say the rawness, the primitiveness of Pink Flamingos. That just means how shitty it looks. But, <laughs> but I thought it looked great then because that was the biggest budget I ever had at that point. It wasn't low budget to me. It was the biggest we had ever had when I made that movie. Um, how did City Sherman end up in your latest film? Did you have in mind a couple of contemporary Well, I knew Cindy a little bit. And um, I knew she was certainly the most famous contemporary photographer. I think Nan Golden and her, either one, you could argue it. And... Um, and she was a great sport, I thought, to come do the movie, and, and certainly in a movie that makes, I think, loving fun of the art world. I, I think she added great authenticity to it by playing herself. And uh, I was just thrilled she was in it. I really liked her movie. I don't get why people were so hateful, but I thought it was really fun and really good. I liked it. You should see it. Don't believe anything you heard about it. I just want to ask you about your photography, because in Hairspray, there's a moment when Divine 
takes a picture of the TV camera. Right, but you see, you don't do it with the flash. It right. doesn't come out. Right. <laughs> but, talk, but you've been doing that in your world. No, what I do is, in the art world is I take photos off the TV monitors of other people's movies and redirect them the way I think they should be in mock storyboards. What's your favorite Little Richard song? My favorite Little Richard song, I guess... Um, Lucille, because I used to play that and my parents would get so uptight, but you know, don't meet your idols. I mean, I grew this mustache because I love Little Richard. Um, I interviewed Little Richard for Playboy and he was a monster. <laughs> I had such trouble. And he had a bodyguard I could have beaten up. Um, <laughs> he was difficult. He wasn't a monster. He just His biography had just come out, which is a great biography if you've ever read it. He sent people bowel movements. I didn't even know that, but after I read Pink Flamingos, he used to do that too. It was a trend, I guess. But, uh, but he wouldn't let me ask him any questions because he didn't want his religious following to know any of that. And I said, well, you can't put a book out and then not expect to be asked questions about it. And then he said, well, you can't leave the room with this tape. And then his bodyguard stood up. I thought, you know, this, this bodyguard was really a joke. I mean, you know, Richard Simmons could have beat him. <laughs> I didn't get any intolerance. In high school, nobody hassled me. They just thought I was nuts. And they knew that I hated authority. So that's the key to not getting beaten up. If bullies know that you, all, you also hate authority, they're a little, they leave you alone, I think. If you can make them laugh. Uh, and laughter was always my protection. How I didn't get beat up is I could make the people that would beat me up laugh first. That's You've got to see the people who are going to beat you up and then make them laugh before they think of beating you up. It's really the key to high school life. Um, but I always liked Baltimore, and they liked me, my films, right from the beginning. The critics didn't or anything, but the public did. Um, I don't know that most eccentrics hate their... Maybe they do, maybe they do. Um, but I still like it there. It's what inspires me. I, I still live there. I live in New York, too. But I, I, in Baltimore, I overhear things. I, I get inspired. I listen to dialogue, and I heard a woman recently say, she's needy, she's nasty, she's a bitch, but that's who she is. <laughs> I don't know. I'll know I'll use that somewhere. <laughs> uh, tell us more about how you got involved in the whole New York well, I used to be in it a lot in the 60s, and then I didn't for a while, and then I, I started reading about it again and just started going to it. It's a world that I really love because it's the opposite of the movie business. In the, in the movie business, they say it has to play in Peoria. You know, regular people have to like it. In the art world, if regular people like it, it's bad, which I'm all for. You know, it's, it's like joining a biker gang. You have to learn to see in a different way. You have to learn how to talk in a different way. It's a very rarefied world, but I like all extreme worlds. It's just the middle I have trouble with. Hmm. Um, speaking of Baltimore, it occurred to me, I was wondering whether you ever had any contact with Barry Levinson or what you thought of his film. I like Barry. You know, I didn't meet Barry until we were on the cover of Baltimore Magazine together, maybe ten years ago. Certainly Homicide is filmed there now, which he's, you know, it's his show. And basically, Pat Moran, who's worked with me forever, casting, just won the Emmy for that show. Vincent Perenia, who did the sets on this, does this. Everybody I know that worked with me that lives in Baltimore works on Homicide. Um, I like Barry's Baltimore films very, very much. They're my favorite of the work he does. He's making one there now called Liberty Heights. Um, in Baltimore, all the time, people yell at me, Barry! Barry Levinson! <laughs> I just wave and say, Homicide, Friday night, 10 o'clock. You know? 
um, I like his films. He makes films about a very different extreme part of Baltimore than I do, but still, he, we celebrate the same thing, the oddness of Baltimore, just different oddnesses. Yeah. In fact, uh, the budget, how, how, what was the budget on Hairspray? And how Hair, the Hairspray budget, I don't remember, I think it was about $2.7 How long was the shoot? Oh, I don't remember. I, not long, certainly. I bet, I don't know. I bet 20-some days. And do you storyboard? Then, I don't think we storyboard. The only time I ever storyboard was in action sequences, and crybaby like the chicken race and that kind of stuff. But, um, and was the choreography in the film, was that your vision? Well, it was my vision. I could get up right now, I'm not, and do all those dances. But uh, I hired a guy named Ed Love, who was a choreographer. And I also uh, hired a woman in Baltimore who was really good, named Linda Snyder, who was one of the queens of the Buddy Dean show. And she knew how to do all the dances. And she taught, really, the kids how to do them. And then the choreographer took over. But she really worked with them every day. The video tab, do you use that? The video tab? I did... For the very first time on polyester, yes, I always use them, yes. I just want to give you a chance to say something about Female Trouble, which we're seeing in Well, that's five. my favorite movie I ever made, and it's unavailable on video. We've been holding it back like Disney held back Fantasia. Uh, it has never completely been released correctly. In the 35-millimeter print, they, New Line decided it was too long, so they took out the scene where Divine swims across the river in full drag. But they forgot to take it out of the video, one of the videos, so they put it in the video. But then, all three video companies that ever put Female Trouble out, Female Trouble is something like 95 or 6 minutes long. Videotape comes in, no, it was 93 minutes, let's say. And videotape comes in 90 minutes. They were too cheap, all the video, to put in the extra 115 minutes, they had to put a blanket, so they just radically cut out scenes in it for no reason, So to, just to make it shorter. So basically, Female Trouble has never, ever been released the right way, and it's, and it's going to be next spring. Um, but... If, if you've seen it over the years, you probably have seen it all in different versions, never all at once, though, I think. Um, when I made the movie, you know, it seemed like very, you know, it was about somebody that wanted to get the electric chair because to them it was like getting the Oscar in their chosen profession. Um, it seems radical then, and now it seems like it could very easily be very tr true. We shot that in the real penitentiary and carried the electric chair across the neighborhood. No! Now in Maryland, they're very liberal. They give you the choice of uh, lethal injection or the gas chamber. Well, who wouldn't take the gas chamber? It's so much more dramatic. And it could bang your head and scream, I want to live, you know. <laughs> uh, but, but female trouble is the best divine vehicle I ever made. And I think it was the main, it was, I always said it was to show divine's extreme beauty and my mental illness, really. And uh, it's just my favorite of the old, of the old film. Well, thank you so much for okay. coming up and, and join us outside. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.